All right, well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, if you want to follow along in the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 761. And this morning, we continue forward in this sermon series going through this book, the book of Joel. And it's been a series that uh, seems to have taken us all by surprise over the first couple of weeks. And I say that in a good way. Just my own study and a lot of the conversations and texts and emails I've received over the last couple of weeks that uh, what is clear is that there is a, um, a serious joy about this book. Uh, a serious gladness that only makes sense, that phrase only makes sense in, when you discuss it in light of God's word. It's, it's not passages that m- might make you happy, but there's a, a really foundational gladness and joy that uh, has been evident and uh, I pray that we'll continue this morning as we dig into chapter 2. And as I said early on, the, the, the big picture framework of the book of Joel is this, that the first half of the book describes present distress. And then the second half promises future deliverance. And it's a short book. It's three chapters. And the passage we're going to see this morning is, is, is kind of the hinge from that first half to the, to the second half. In that Joel opened this book, if you haven't been with us the first couple of weeks or haven't been able to, um, to catch up, it, it, he's, he's talking about a devastating locust invasion that has uh, come into Israel, Jerusalem, has destroyed all of the crops. And then last week, he, uh, the way we ended was just taking a quick look at an observation of what he mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15, when he connected for the first time this invasion of locusts to the day of the Lord at the end of days. And now we're going to see him really go further onto that. And so we're going to be in verses 1 through 17 this morning of Joel 2. I want to read it all up front uh, because I want us to feel the weight of this passage. It's got some weight to it. Um, In fact, every Monday morning at our staff meeting, our whole staff meets uh, Monday morning for a couple hours. And the first thing we do is read the passage for the upcoming Sunday. And, and then someone prays over that passage, thanks God for something in that passage, and then prays for you on Monday morning ahead of the following Sunday, that God would be preparing all of our hearts in the week leading up to the preaching of his word uh, that next week. And so the, the staff member who read this passage uh, was going through it, and at some point in kind of the back half just needed to stop and take a breath and kind of exhale, um, not just because they got caught in their own breathing rhythm, but, but the, the, it was just a weighty passage. And I think uh, the person even said uh, that this is a lot. And we all kind of just nodded because we felt it. And so I want you to feel it this morning. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. And their like has never been before, nor will ever be after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots. They leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. 
Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb upon the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. For he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call an assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Amen. Here's the overarching question before us this morning. What does an invasion of locusts in the recent past that has caused present-day distress have to do with the cosmic end-of-the-age day of the Lord that is in the distant future? What do those two things have to do with one another? And then maybe, as importantly, what does that have to do with us now? Uh, Chapter 2, in many ways, is a parallel to chapter 1, almost a retelling in some ways of chapter 1. Recall chapter 1, Joel started the entire book with this, um, saying, hear this. Grabbing the attention, hear this, listen to this, and then proceeded to share about a devastating locust invasion. And now chapter 2 begins with, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm. It's kind of like, listen to this, musical version. The day of the Lord is coming. So at this point, let's ask, what is the day of the Lord? What does the Bible mean when it speaks of that phrase, both here and elsewhere? In short, the day of the Lord means God's clear vindication of himself in history. Let's sit with that for a second. The phrase means God's clear vindication of himself in history. It is the day when all will be made known. And there will be no doubt or question who he is. There will no longer be a mystery of who God is or what the point of all this is. It also refers to the day, the time, when God will both punish and save He will both punish and restore the whole world in the end of days. That is the day of the Lord. This is not to be confused with, and I want to go a little bit of a sidebar here just for clarity. It's not to be confused with the phrase, the Lord's day, which you also might have heard or be familiar with, or we say from time to time here. The Lord's day is a phrase in which the early church came to refer as Sunday. 
the day that they gathered, the day that they gathered together for worship because it was the day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. So that, as we know, has been maintained now for 2,000 years. Again, we stand on the backs of 2,000 years of church history. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have gathered on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day, in glad remembrance of his saving grace, which is why we say, and we just went through this in the series before, that at grace on Sundays, we gather powerfully, simply, boldly, On Sundays, we gather. But throughout verses 1 through 11, Joel is weaving in and then weaving out of this present-day reality for Israel where they're dealing with a locust invasion and a future-day reality with the Lord's army on the day of the Lord. And he's weaving in and he's weaving out to the point where, I don't know if you found yourself asking this while I was reading, I definitely was asking this was, um, Joel, which one are you talking about now? Are we still talking about the locusts? Are we on to the Lord's army? No, we're back to the locusts. Oh, wait, no, no, you just said the Lord again. And so here's where I'm reminded, I want you to be reminded, the genre here is prophetic poetry. It is truth expressed through metaphorical language and word pictures to describe very real events. And Joel is dancing between the past and the present and the future. And if you have a mind like me, that you want linear point-by-point clarity... Give me the bullet points, Joel. I need to be reminded, and perhaps you do too, that this passage is not one to be solved, but it is one to be felt. And those of you who do have a disposition towards poetry, uh, artistic thinking, you're a visual learner, um, appreciation maybe for music, you, you probably don't struggle at the same level I do with a passage like this. And I find I am growing, the Lord is growing me, sanctifying me in my appreciation for passages like this and this genre, because my default is always to solve it. I want to solve it. It'd be great if I could do it in three points that start with the same letter. All right? And you just know that's the way I operate. But that's not going to happen here. And it doesn't need to happen. Because the answer to the question, Joel, are you talking about the past, the present, or the future? The answer is yes. And let us not lose sight of his message in the midst of the vivid descriptions that by comparing the day of the Lord to the invasion of locusts, he wants to create an urgency as people. Sound the trumpet. Hear this. He wants the people of God to wake up. You're sleeping. Wake up. And just like in chapter 1 when he started by saying, hey, you know what, you're going to tell your children about this. It's one of those things. You're going to tell your children. You know what, they're going to tell their children. And this story is going to last in generations in your family. He ends chapter 2 speaking of the Lord's day as a day that all, no, sorry, the day of the Lord, I'm already even confusing it, the day of the Lord as the day that all other days will bow down to. So he ended this passage in verse 16 with this kind of rapid fire, gather the people, gather the children, gather the nursing infants, the whole congregation, let them know. The day of the Lord is coming. Um, I I read an article recently that asked the question about movies in the film industry that why are apocalyptic films on the rise again? Uh, Why, as a society that gets more enlightened, more comfortable, wealthier, do we still spend movies to watch movies of the world ending? Like, by choice. 
Why do we pay money to watch depressing movies? Even some of the kind of, uh, the big kind of Marvel superhero movies are uh, kind of an example of what happens to keep the world from ending. So you got this theme in the background, the end of days, the end of time. Why are we so prone to that? Why haven't we moved past that? Why are apocalyptic films kind of on the rise again? It seems that there is something in us, in all people, that causes us to pay attention and have a keen interest in the quote-unquote last days. It's almost as it seems that all of us know deep down we're not going to be here forever. So what's coming? And the Bible reveals that all of history began with a day when God created. And all of history is headed towards a day of the Lord when, the God, when God will recreate. And how you view that day in the future will impact the way you live out your days now. All of us, whether we realize it or not, are living our lives each day in light of the last days, whether or not we even realize what's coming in the last days. It impacts us. So a couple more observations here leading to verse 11, which is the pivotal point of this passage, um, is that these verses and these references, I just want to show us this, um, it reveals that Joel knew his Bible. Meaning that Joel was very familiar with the scriptures that came before him, and you see that all over the place in this passage. And so just to reaffirm in us, too, as a church, it shows the unity and agreement of the Bible within itself. That this book is not a collection of stories that were assembled together over uh, a few centuries, um, and, and then somebody later kind of compiled them all together and called it the Bible. But this is one story. It is a unified story inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I want to just show us a few of these examples um, so, uh, you know, last week I said, you know, it, last week was not for the Bible nerds. This morning, this is your morning, all right? This is for you. This is for us Bible nerds. Um, first, uh, Joel follows a pattern in this whole book out of the book of, book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is uh, Moses giving his last words to Israel before they go into the promised land. And he speaks about the covenant of God delivered to Israel through him, through Moses. A covenant of curses for those who will rebel against God and a covenant of blessing to those who will obey him. And then in Deuteronomy 32, you see the themes of cursing, and yet there's a turn in 32 that Deuteronomy 32 ends with this promise of restoration for God's people, meaning that God's covenant is unbreakable. His faithfulness will always overcome faithlessness. God's faithfulness will always overcome our faithlessness in his covenant because his love covers our sin. And his grace will prevail. It's right there in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Joel is in some ways this prophetic, poet, poetic extension of Deuteronomy 32. Also, Joel connects the locust invasion to the coming darkness to follow. Verse 2, a day of the clouds and thick darkness that follows the invasion, like blackness spread upon the mountains like has never been seen before. Many of you are familiar with the story of the ten plagues in the book of Exodus. God again sent Moses to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. And he sent ten plagues upon Pharaoh to, who refused to let his people go. And so it required another plague. And Pharaoh would have this pattern of, go, okay, okay, I relent, I relent. Just get rid of that plague and then I'll let him go. And the plague relents and then he doesn't let him go. So then he's got to send another one. The eighth plague was locusts. 
And I think we have the, the verse up on the screen here from Exodus 10, so you don't have to turn there, verses 14 and 15. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. Sound familiar? They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh could not stand the locusts. He promised that he'll let God's people go if they just get taken away. A wind sweeps in, takes them away. He goes back on his word. And then the ninth plague that followed, who knows the ninth plague? Darkness. Verses 21 and 22, again on the screen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. What a phrase. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt three days. So Joel here also speaks of darkness that follows the locusts, and then correlates that all to the day of the Lord that is coming. And then we don't have time to totally unpack this, but in verse 3, he said, before the locusts came, it was like the Garden of Eden. Going back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, the place where God's people dwelled in perfect relationship with him after sin came into, or before sin came into the world. And then verse 4, he likens the locusts to the appearance of horses, like war horses, they run. And you don't have to turn here, but if you went to the very end of your Bible... To Revelation chapter 9, which was written right after even Joel was written. Talk about the unity of scripture. This is Revelation 9 verse 7, where John is talking about the last days. And the beginning of chapter 9, it said, an angel blew a trumpet, sounded the alarm. And then here's actually verse 3 and then verse 7 of Revelation 9. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. John, are we talking about locusts or people? Joel, are we talking about locusts or people? Cover to cover, the unity of Scripture that all points to one message, but beyond one message, it all points to one person. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there. When you read these first 11 verses and you feel like it's a lot, and you get to verse 11, Joel asks the question that we're all feeling. If your Bible's open, look again at 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This is the key question of the passage. This is the pivotal point of not only the chapter, but I think the entire book of Joel. After all we've read so far in Joel, navigating between this local devastation and the cosmic coming of the Lord, the question asks, who can endure it? Like, meaning, who could avoid being impacted by a locust invasion? Read those descriptions again. You're not getting away from that. Everyone's feeling that. Where can you go in Israel that you will not be impacted? Again, I wonder if we have a little bit more insight to this when you see an invisible virus go across the globe and you go, no one's going to be untouched. It'll impact you in one way or another. Who can endure it? But then, more importantly, who can endure the day of the Lord and not get by unscathed? Who can escape it? Who? The implied but clear answer is no one. No one can endure it. No one at this point 
can afford to bury their head in the sand, act like everything is good, and let's wait for this to pass and get back to everyday life. You can't do it. Why is that the answer? Why is the answer no one? It's because none of us will come before the Lord on that day with an empty rap sheet. You know what I mean? No matter your background, no matter how diligent you went to church as a kid, all through your dull ears, no matter your religious knowledge, what kind of tests you could pass, no matter your sexual purity, or on the other side, no matter your sexual sin or how far you've messed up, nobody comes to us with an empty rap sheet. doesn't matter your family history. doesn't matter about the size of your bank account to your house. On that day, we have all exchanged the glory of God for the glory of self. And the greatest grace upon your life, hear me please, The greatest grace upon your life is located in the agonizing yet necessary moment when your heart sees for the first time you can't save yourself. That you, in the language of Joel chapter 2, verse 11, cannot endure the day of the Lord on your own, no matter how strong you appear in this world. It's an agonizingly beautiful moment when you realize that you are wholly dependent upon the grace of God, that every other door has been shut to you, and you were laid bare before him, and yet here is where the book of Joel flips. Here is the hinge from present distress to future deliverance, because up to this point, let's be honest, it's been kind of doom and gloom in Joel, but then jumping off the page like a beam of light at the end of a dark tunnel, we get to verse 12. If your Bible's still open, look again at verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For, again quoting Exodus, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It is right here, in the middle of a prophetic flyover book in the Old Testament, written centuries ago, where a timeless truth jumps off the page. That when your heart is awakened to see the coming judgment of God, the response that brings deliverance is not to hide. It is not to try just work harder and do better. But it is time to tune your hearts to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. God's pronouncement of judgment, you see, is not a weapon to be used against yourself or against other people. It's not primarily coming from an angry God that just wants you to fear him and be terrified of him and live accordingly. But it is a biblical pronouncement of judgment that proves to be a manifestation of his grace. This is here because of his grace. Because it's not loving to allow people to continue living their lives as if nothing is wrong. And that life is all about just living for the good times of earthly enjoyment and collect some toys along the way and make some memories and get comfortable as possible in this world and to hang on as long as you can. It's not loving to let people stay on that path. 
Uh, There's an author named Jared Wilson. He he wrote a book that was very impactful for me after I graduated college and God kind of turned my life around. I was just going long term into uh, a bad place for multiple years and and God by his grace decided to uh, decide that season was over and drew me back to himself. And I read uh, Jared's book kind of right on the heels of that experience and it really resonated with me. Uh, The book is called Gospel Wakefulness. Gospel Wakefulness. It's him sharing the story of how God awakened him to the gospel. And so I I think we have it on the screen. I just want to read a passage from this book. Jared says, I was raised in the church. When I was about six years old, I walked the aisle one Sunday, made a decision, and therefore got baptized. Then I did it all over again at 12 years of age after those 1970s rapture movies scared the fire out of me. I was deathly afraid that if I wasn't super sure I'd ask Jesus into my heart, the Antichrist was going to come cut my head off. I was a timid, fearful, clinging to life insurance kind of believer. It wasn't until I was in my late 20s, I was married and had kids. And as I was out of options and out of help and tempted to abandon what scrap of faith I had left, I could hear the Lord asking, do you want to try anything else? And I was granted the grace to say to the God of my salvation, to whom shall I go? Whether you can resonate much or just a little of that story, every one of our stories of those who are following Christ include a moment or moments when we arrive to the end of our rope. And in that moment, we can plunge into distress We can turn a blind eye and hope it goes away. Or by the grace of God, it can lead to life through repentance. And Joel prescribes that when we come to the end of ourselves and we repent of our sin before God, we return to the Lord, two things happen real quick. Number one, we change inwardly. When you repent, you actually change inwardly. That God, as he has revealed himself in his word, has always and will always be concerned with the heart first and foremost. He looks at the heart. Verse 12, rend your hearts and not your garments. He's not saying, I don't care about your garments. He goes, but I care more about your heart. A heart that turns to the Lord for salvation will always come from a place of pain of weeping and mourning over our inability to save ourselves. That's an agonizing moment. The end of your rope, it's a tough place. And it's a place that everyone needs to get to before they're actually going to return to the Lord. Because repentance is not first an action. Repentance is not something you first have to do. It's first a surrendering. Not because you see God is angry and you need to get on his good side, but because you see and are drawn to him for He is gracious, and he's merciful, and he is slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. When you see that part of God, that leads to repentance, not the angry, I better do this or else part of God. Repentance is a word of freedom, because everyone in this room needs forgiveness. It's all of our deepest need. And we know deep inside that there is a brokenness, and it's not only out there in the world, although we see plenty of brokenness out there in the world, but we also feel it in us. And those are the moments you can do one of two things. You can try and convince yourself that you can just deal with imperfections and make the best of it. Hope or think that God will just overlook our brokenness and, you know, let's see if it works out in the end. Or we can receive the gift of God's Son, who paid for our sin in full. 
who forgives us and counts us righteous when we believe in him. And now that brokenness is not something you just have to forget and hope it doesn't come back to bite you, but it's something that now you have dominion over because it no longer has dominion over you. You change inwardly. And then number two, you change outwardly. That once God transforms our hearts and dwells within us by his Holy Spirit, which we will see later in this series, we begin to change. And as you're more awakened to his grace in, his, in your life and you increasingly are drawn to pursue him, which is a repentance ongoing, right? We repent once to receive the forgiveness of sins and, and be justified in salvation. But then life is full of mistakes because we're full of mistakes. Like Luther said, life is full, is, 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 all of life is repentance, he said. And the pain of experiencing sin and then the joy of being freed from the separation that that sin brought about and then being restored to God and being restored to others. This is the Christian life and it's up and it's down and it's two steps forward and it's one steps back. But it's a constant pursuit of him. And so in this passage, after Joel said, render your hearts, he talks about fasting. He talks about the reinstatement of the grain offering and the drink offering and gathering as an assembly. They are outward actions that reflect an inward truth. That God changes you inwardly, and then by his ongoing grace, he begins to change you outwardly in a way that's noticeable to you, probably first and foremost, but also to others around you. Where if you hear your story, if it's in your story that after you came to faith, people started to say, something started to become a little bit different about you. Maybe small ways first, but the closer people are to you, the more they noticed about you. The fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5 it's not just words on a page, but you start to see it emerge in your life and grow. The fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those outward changes then serve as a witness to the inward change that only God could bring about. Especially to those who are at the end of their rope. So Joel chapters 1 and 2. We're not done with 2 yet, but let me tie this together before we close so we can just marvel at what God is doing in this book. And I have this on the screen too just because it helps me when I write it out to, to see it. But he, here's Joel 1 and 2. Ready? Joel speaks of a past day, an invasion of locusts, that has led to present day distress. That he connects with a future day, an invasion of the Lord. That can lead to present day assurance for those who repent and turn to him. Joel 1 and 2. And so the question that is laid before us is that when you think about the day of the Lord, the day when God will vindicate himself, the day when all will be made known, the day when God will both punish and restore the whole world, Will that be a day of joy for you? Because the unrepentant should fear the day of the Lord. But the forgiven and redeemed can anticipate the future with hope and then live in the present with purpose and assurance. And if I can be completely honest, um, I know some of you have just not made it to the end of your rope yet. You still think you can do this on your own. And you hear this, a message like this, and maybe a part of you is drawn to it, but not ready to surrender, and that you are holding back. And the blame is being 
cast elsewhere. I can fix it if this gets solved. My prayer for you, and it might sound like a strange prayer at first, my prayer for you is that you would come to the end of you. For when you die to self, you begin to live for the first time. When you get to the end of your rope and realize you can't do it yourself, that is the most beautifully agonizing moment you can ever experience. Because at that same moment, the grace of God is offered to you. It's the moment you realize that a passage about locusts, kind of weird. A message about darkness, kind of dark, can lead to life. In Exodus chapter 11, we saw the eighth plague was locusts. We saw the ninth was darkness. What was the tenth? The tenth and final plague that would finally release God's people from slavery was the death of the firstborn son. The ultimate judgment and the ultimate darkness that also was the plague that brought deliverance. That God, through Moses, told Israel to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb above the doorpost. And for those who would be covered by the blood, he would pass over them and spare judgment, which was and is the meaning of Passover to this day. But that was pointing towards something. I heard a pastor say once, the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. Joel is a story in search of an ending. A story that would lead to the revelation of God that, that God can spare judgment on those who repent of their sin because and only because he did not spare his only son for us. And he sent Jesus for the joy set before him to shed his blood on our behalf, to take judgment upon himself. And Jesus, who rose from the dead, vindicating his claim to be God and declare victory over the darkness so that for those who are covered by the blood would be saved, released from the slavery of sin, and awakened to the reality of life that will lead to the day of the Lord. What will that day be for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it tells us that all of history began with a day when you created. Out of your goodness and your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that the Bible shares the single unified story that all of history will lead to another day. A day when you will recreate because of your grace and your goodness. And I pray, Lord, that that would bring conviction for those who are have not put their faith in you. But we also pray, Lord, this will bring assurance for those who have. And it would create and raise an urgency in us to live for you and to proclaim your name to those who do not yet know you. And Lord, as we prepare now to stand together and sing Christ our only hope in life and death, we close with these words of the final verse. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Amen, Father. All glory due your name. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing those words together in response to God's word.